Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Our Father, we thank you that you are the great God that you are. You said that you are above the vault of the earth, and yet we are but grasshoppers in our, your sight, that you can weigh all the nations of the world, and they're but dust in your sight. But thank you, even in your greatness, you love us personally. You know everything about us. The hairs on our head, you said, are numbered. You said a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from your notice, and we are of so much greater value than a bird. We love you, our Father, in making it all possible through the work of Jesus to have access, to be made alive by the Holy Spirit, who convicted us and showed us our need that we might call upon Jesus in faith. You have given us a commission to do what your son did. You said he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And you've entrusted that commission to us. And many just a month ago made that commitment in this year to believe you for at least one person in the next 12 months to come into the kingdom. So teach us this morning from the master teacher, the Lord Jesus, and the way that he confronted people and dealt with people. Help us to learn from him that we might, even in this new week, take the initiative with someone who needs to know the forgiveness that you alone can offer. Help me, Father, as I communicate. Thank you for giving me the chance to study, but allow me now to communicate what you've shown me in the power of your Holy Spirit. May you speak to each and every heart and each person listening, and I ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you, John chapter 4. We've been in a series on the Revelation, and we'll come back to that in our next session together. But this morning, I want to put before you the challenge that many of us took on. Hundreds prayed a month ago at our anniversary that they would trust God for one person. And some of you have told me that you are asking God to use you in that way. Well, I want to put before us a passage this morning that will help us to learn how to confront people with the gospel. Now, as your pastor, I don't know everything about you, but I know one thing about you, and that is you have a thirst in your life that can only be satisfied in a particular way. I had a lawn business in junior high and high school, and sometimes it would get so hot in those New England suns, especially where most of the homes did not have air conditioning, and I would get on my little bicycle and pedal about a mile to the local Burt's gas station. And for 10 cents, you'd put it in the machine, and there was this thing that you twisted and this little glass thing that you'd look through, and there you got your drink of Coke and put your dime in, open it up, and you get your ice-cold bottle of Coke. But no sooner had you drank it and got back to work, you were thirsty again. 
And I soon learned that there was nothing quite like Adam's ale, that is good old-fashioned, ordinary, everyday water that satisfies like few other things. When you read the label on a Coke bottle, you see all the artificial flavors, the chemicals, the sugars, and it just doesn't have the touch of authenticity that water has. Well, there are many of us today, some here, some listening, some who are saved, some who are not, who are looking for cheap substitutes to satisfy a thirst that only God can satisfy. And what we learn here in this passage of Scripture is how to worship God in both spirit and in truth. Now, in John chapters 3 and 4, we find two unique accounts found only in the Gospel of John where Jesus encounters two different people from two drastically different realms of life to share himself with them. One is a man, the other is a woman. One is a Jew named Nicodemus, the other is this Samaritan woman. One was a respected ruler, the other was an outcast. One was highly moral as a Pharisee, the other was a notorious sinner. One came to Jesus by night, the other came in the middle of the day. Nicodemus had no arguments, he just asked how. But this woman was full of questions, was very debative. Nicodemus does not initially respond, though the Gospel of John later indicates that he did. But this woman, on this day, on this encounter, becomes a believer. And that's a good reminder to us. There are some people who, like the church at Thessalonica, the first time they hear the Gospel will believe. And then there are other people who, like the Bereans, were studying and searching the Scriptures to see if what Paul said about Messiah was indeed fulfilled in Jesus, and they give it a lot of thought in the process. Well, here's a woman who, unlike this leader, this teacher of teachers, as he's described in John 3, here's a woman who's unschooled, a moral outcast, a Samaritan being a despised race of people. And God puts, I think, by the Spirit of God, these two accounts side by side to show us a study in contrast. Some who have been raised in religious homes, who have a certain knowledge of Scripture, and some who have very little knowledge of Scripture. And that's really where we are today in America. When I first started sharing the gospel as a new Christian in 1975, the, the week I became a Christian, I shared the gospel for the very first time. I was in a class learning how to share my faith, and I discovered I was not a Christian. And the assignment that week was to go share this little booklet. It was what I call an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel. There was an assumption in the four spiritual laws that people had a basic knowledge. That's gone for the most part now in America with the younger generation. So now we do more of an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel. We assume very, very little. And that's really where this woman fits into. But in these two examples, we find that none are too good to be saved and none are too bad to be saved, that God loves sinners, that we are all equally in need and equally in need of salvation. Now, I'm not going to read the entire text, but I want to begin by reading the first 10 verses, follow along John chapter 4 this morning. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, 
He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was thus sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There in your bulletin, you can see that this narrative portion really unfolds in three scenes. In verses 1 through 8, we find the confrontation. Then in verses 9 through 30, the conversation. And then in verses 31 to 42, the conversion. So let's jump right into this narrative section, this historical account, as we begin with the confrontation in verses 1 through 8. Notice the first three verses, therefore... When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then John adds this meticulous parenthetical note, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, that as Jesus baptized through his disciples, they were the instruments that he was using to perform the baptism. And so we're told in verse 3, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Now, if you will notice, the very first word in verse 1 is the word, therefore. It's alerting us to the fact that there's a connection between what is about to happen and the preceding scene that had just been recorded. Now, unfortunately, in the ESV, the NIV, and other translations, the word, therefore, is not there. And those are more what we would call a dynamic equivalent translation. A dynamic equivalent has two goals, readability and literalness, but they put reading over literalness. A formal equivalent, or sometimes called a literal equivalent translation of the Bible, has the same two goals, but they put literalness first and readability second. And when you become a serious student of the Bible and you really want to study it verse by verse, then you begin to see the beauty of a formal, literal translation of the Bible like the New American Standard. So the word therefore is found in the Greek New Testament. And of course, whenever you see the word therefore, you're asking, what is the word therefore, therefore? Well, he's making a connection between what is about to happen in the previous paragraph. In chapter 3, at this time, Jesus' influence is rising and John the Baptist's is diminishing. The Pharisees see that Jesus is getting more and more popular, and that concerns them, that worries them. And so they would like to pit the disciples of John against the disciples of Christ. And of course, neither Jesus nor John are interested in that game. But a major truth that runs all the way through the Gospel of John is that Jesus is on a divine schedule, and the Pharisees want to mess it up. And, of course, he will say in John chapter 10, no one will take my life away from me. I will give it. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up. He is in control. He is living according to the Father's timetable. And so recognizing what is happening with these Pharisees, 
Jesus decides it is wisest to leave the region. We are told in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. You cannot read that verse without seeing those two little words. I have them underlined. He had to. Now, here's a map as uh, Israel looked in the day of Christ. Jesus is in Judea, specifically the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and he wants to go north. If you lived in Jesus' day and you wanted to travel to Galilee, where he is ultimately heading, you had really one of three options. You could go north, staying here on the western edge of Samaria along the coasts, and avoid, for the most part, contact with the Samaritan folks. A more preferable route for most Jews in the day is they would go north, staying east of Samaria through the province of Perea along the Jordan River, and they would avoid the Samaritans altogether. The third option, it's the shortest route, obviously, is you go north directly through Samaria. But if you were a Jew, that was the least preferable route because you wanted to have no contact with the Samaritans. Josephus, who's a Jewish historian in the first century, he uses this word had to in a lot of his writings in order to describe something that is essential that needs to take place. And it's a little three-letter word in Greek, D-E-I-D-E-O, we pronounce it. Some literal translations say, it is necessary. That's really the thought. It is necessary. And on five occasions in the Gospel of John, John uses that little word to describe something that is absolutely essential that must happen. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he has a mission. He wants to reach a woman, and not just a woman, an entire village, for Christ is the Savior of the world. Now, I think it's critically important to understand something of the origins of the prejudice between Jews and Samaritans. If you remember, originally all 12 tribes were united uh, under their first three kings, the period of the monarchy, their first three kings each reigned for 40 years, Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon, if you remember, began to get engaged in idolatry as for political reasons and also for sensual reasons, married a number of foreign women. The problem with marrying a foreign woman, unlike Moses who married a Canaanite, typically to marry a foreign woman was to marry someone who was an idolater, and that was the case with Solomon. And so his heart was drawn away. If you stand on the Mount of Olives, you look directly across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount, you look over here to Mount Scopus, where Titus Vespucian scoped out the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD to destroy it, but you look off to the left and there's the Mount of Scandal. And that's where Solomon scandalously had high places for his wife's to worship their pagan gods, and many of the people were drawn away. So God said, Solomon, you're going to live like this. I'm going to deal with you because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now, understand, there are some things they did under the old covenant that you could never pull off as a new covenant Christian. You wouldn't even be considered a believer. But remember, we're living on this side of Pentecost. We're living where God has taken a heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh. So God said, I'm going to tear the kingdom in two, but I'll wait until you die because of this special relationship I have with your dad, David. 
So Solomon dies, Rehoboam comes to the throne. Instead of listening to the wise elders, he listens to the foolish younger men. They say, oh, your dad taxed the people. You need to tax them harder. You need to work them harder. And so God had already sent a prophet to another fellow by the name of Jeroboam. And God said, look, I'm going to split the kingdom and I'm going to give you 10 tribes. And the two southern tribes became known as Judah. And the 10 northern tribes came to be known as Israel. Originally, they were all called Israel. Now, that's important because as you read through the Old Testament, you'll read like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and you'll see two kings reigning at the same time because one is reigning in the southern kingdom, the other is in the northern kingdom. And as you read these Old Testament prophets, you want to always ask, to whom is this prophet in ministry to? The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, when does he preach it? What time frame in Israel's history? So God judges the northern kingdoms through the Assyrians. The Assyrians come down and they carry away most of the Jewish people, but they leave some behind to intermarry with their own people whom they populate the land with for control. Eventually, they develop their own capital. It's called Samaria. And with time, the whole province is called Samaria. And these people who live there, who had intermarried with the Assyrians, being a mongrel race, they're called Samaritans. And they are a despised people. They are a hated people. They are viewed as traitors of sorts because they were, quote-unquote, evil in that they had done what God said not to do, and that was to marry foreign wives. Now, not all of the Samaritans were idolaters, and certainly this woman whom we're going to meet today is not an idolater. But to marry typically a Gentile, a non-Jew, was to marry a foreigner, a pagan, and it was anathema. Even to this day, if you're an Orthodox Jew and one of your children marries a Gentile, it's anathema. In many Orthodox homes, you are considered dead. So here's this province with this mixed race of people um, not being able to worship in Jerusalem. They build their own temple at a place called Mount Gerizim. That temple is ultimately destroyed by a man by the name of John Hyrcanus in the second century BC. So there's all this bad blood, intense hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Now look at verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Now, Sychar is right next to Mount Gerizim. You've heard of Mount Gerizim in the Bible, right? Remember, this place, Shechem, Sychar, they're like sister cities right next to each other. The word Shechem literally means between the shoulder blades. When we were kids, we'd take our shirts off and you'd put this arm up and this arm up and, you know, you'd have your chicken wings showing. Well, think of those two chicken wings that are showing, two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And remember, before Moses died, you had the Jews on one mountain and Jews on the other mountain, and some stated the blessings of God and others stated the curses of God. And between that area is this place, Sychar and Shechem, where these two places are found. It's a, an important place. I've never been there. Uh, you don't typically get to go into the West Bank today. 
Uh, no tour company in Israel would let you go in there, just because of the potential danger. Now, I was down at the Gaza Strip, and my last trip in December didn't go, but we went right close to it in a town that was right close to it where American tourists never go. They had this display of all these bombs that had come over into that city. Uh, that had been lobbed over, and just a collection of them, a display, and all across that little town, there were these uh, bomb shelters that you could run into if the alarm went off. Every home has a bomb shelter in that part of Israel. So you never go there, so don't get worried if you go with me to Israel. You you never go there, all right? But uh, there's a lot of important things that took place here. Uh, this was the place that Abraham arrived at when he walked and he walked and he walked and he walked and he walked. He came to Shechem slash Sychar, and God said, stop, Abraham, this is where I want you to live, and we call the whole country today Israel. This was the place where Jacob, if you remember, came, and he dug a well. It was also the place where his daughter Dinah was violated. And after they violated her, two of the brothers went and tricked the men of Sychar and and murdered them. It was also the place where Joseph, not a hundred yards from this well, this well is, by the way, is a class A spot. It's not like, well, maybe it happened here. Maybe this was, no, this is Jacob's well. This is it. It's a class A spot. We know it happened right here. A hundred yards away is the tomb of Joseph where they buried his bones. If you remember, he said, "I, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Now, God said, we're going to be here 400 years. He told Abraham that. Joseph knew it. But when you go into the promised land, take my coffin and bury my bones. This is the place where Joshua made a covenant with the people of Israel. And it was there that Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this is an important place. And we're told in verse 6, so Jesus being wearied from his journey was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, some have misunderstood what's meant by the sixth hour because they count the hours from midnight to noon or then noon to midnight. This is not 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. The Romans counted that way for legal purposes, for the sake of a deed, because you needed a precise time. But the Jews and the common Roman person, they counted the hours running from dawn to dark, then uh, from dawn to sunrise, and then sunrise, so to speak. And so it being the sixth hour tells you it is dead noon. Why is that significant? Because people, especially during this time of the year, it's after Passover, it's already hot. They don't fetch water in the middle of the day. And certainly not as a woman... You would never go alone. You would go as a group for safety. But this woman, as we'll see in a moment, as many of you already know, was an outcast. And so she did not want to come when other women would be there. She didn't want to deal deal with the stares, with the gossip, with the critics. And we're told here, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. Now, I don't know exactly how he was sitting, Typically, the wells in the first century were not kind of like we got this beautiful stone wall all the way around it. Uh, They were usually a place where you sat on the ground. In either case, the text says he was wearied. It's affirming and underscoring 
as John does throughout the gospel, both his deity and his humanity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he writes in the prologue. And then he will write, and the Word became flesh. God took on our human nature. It's what the prophet said, a baby will be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. And so he's worried, he's thirsty, and he's hungry, which is why the disciples are in town to buy food. So on the one hand, he is truly human. On the other hand, he is also divine such that he can tell her everything. He knows everything about her. Think about it. It's a sobering thought that the God who spoke a hundred billion universes into existence came down and took on our humanity. And he is described here in his humanity. He's a real human being. He has real emotions. He has real human feelings. He gets thirsty. He gets tired. And yet he is going to, from his divine person, offer this woman living water. And she's going to realize it's more than just moving water, as the term is often used, that the double entendre that we'll look at in a moment is true, that this one is divine. He told me, he said everything, he knows everything about myself. Now, throughout the history of Christianity, there have been errors concerning either the humanity of Christ or the deity of Christ. Sometimes he's presented as a man with divine qualities, but not being truly God. On the other hand, sometimes he's presented as God in some false cults, pretending to be a man. And of course, both extremes are untrue. He's not half God. He's not half man. He is the God-man. He is truly God, truly man. Two personages brought together, inseparably combined, Christ Jesus the Lord. He is equally human. He is equally divine. And on this occasion, the Lord is sitting, tired, by a well, and he has an appointment with a woman, and she just doesn't know it yet. Now, not only is there a famous well here, and not only is there a famous tomb here, there's this famous mountain called Gerizim. Look at verse 7, and we'll think about this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, it's rather interesting. The one who created the Nile River, the one who made the great Mississippi, the one who constructed Niagara Falls, the one who in John chapter 2 turned water into wine, he could have just spoken to that well, and it would have overflowed all over his feet. But Jesus never once in the Scriptures, during his ministry, does a miracle for himself because he came to experience our humanity to the fullest. Now, it looks on the surface that the Lord Jesus is the needy person, but of course, that's not the case. Look at verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, verse 8 suggests four. He's giving us a reason. In other words, typically, it would have been the disciples who would have drawn the water. But they're not drawing the water on this occasion because they've gone into the city and they are there to buy food. Now, most Jews in that day would be unwilling to buy food that had been handled by a Samaritan. That was as contemptible as eating pork. But the Lord has a purpose. He's working not only in the Samaritan woman's heart, he's working in the hearts of the disciples. Go buy food 
in that town. Pretty significant. They're going to have to deal with some things in their hearts as well. And so there are some lessons here, not just for lost people who need to be saved, but there are lessons here for those of us who have met Christ. And some of us, you've told me you've never, ever introduced anyone to the Savior in your whole life, not even indirectly. I believe God wants to change that. And if you will seek Him here in this next year and believe Him to do something through you, I believe He will do it. And so God has a plan and a purpose here in that he meets this woman at the well. That's the initial confrontation. He takes the initiative. He is the one who is going to bridge the gulf between himself and this lost woman. And by the way, if you're not willing to take an initiative, you'll never see anyone come into the kingdom. Some people, strangely, oddly enough, have said this is an example of friendship evangelism. And so they said, well, you know, I, I, I do friendship evangelism. By that, they mean they, they build this long, protracted relationship with a person in order to share the gospel. And I'm not saying and discounting that, but most of the evangelism in the New Testament was not, quote-unquote, friendship evangelism. In the Great Commission, it says, go, therefore, and make disciples. It's a participle, literally, as you go make disciples. Now, we, we make him a missionary verse, you know, go to Taiwan, go to China, go to Africa, go to Australia. But it's a part of what literally reads, as you go, make converts, disciples. It doesn't say do discipleship. That's been a misread by the navigators, and they've robbed the church of a lot of evangelism, though I love the navigators. They have taken away the spirited need to do initiative evangelism. If people get comfortable, I'm just making disciples. I'm leading my Bible study with these believers. But you can't be making disciples. You can't be doing discipleship if you're not attempting to win people to Jesus. It's critical. As you go, as you go where? As you go, everywhere you go, make disciples. Jesus took the initiative. If this is friendship evangelism, the friendship hadn't been going a minute before he bridges into her world and shows her the need. Now, beyond the confrontation, there's now the conversation. So let's step through the conversation beginning now, if you will, in verse 9. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John notes, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There was a suspicion, there was animosity that these two groups of people have towards one another. Remember, the Jewish people saw the Samaritans basically as a hated race. So how would you ask me as a Jew for a drink? I'm not only a Samaritan, I'm a woman. Now remember, Jesus, he is a Jewish man. And Jewish men, especially rabbis, and he would have probably worn the identifiable garb because many people just directed him and spoke to him as rabbi. But in either case, most people knew he was a teacher. But a man did not dialogue with a woman in public. Now, unfortunately, women were seen as less than admirable in that day. So she's coming. She sees this man sitting at the well. He's about 30 years of age. This is early in his ministry. And she needs to ask herself the question, am I going to go and draw water? But this is her only chance. 
unless she wants to deal with all of the gossips and other people in town. And so to a first century reader, this is really an incredible event that is taking place. And you see Jesus breaking down the barriers between race and and sex. It is really the application of what he told Nicodemus in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Jesus is not going just for the Jews. He's going for the Gentile. He's going for the whole world. And she can't fathom, therefore, why a Jew would ask her for a drink. But Jesus has a way of turning conversations into the spiritual realm whether it was sowing seed, whether it was a flower that was growing, whether it was a well that was bubbling. He he just had a way of turning the conversation. Notice what he says in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, she obviously did not know who it is that was speaking to her. If she knew that, Jesus said, you would have asked me for the gift of God. And so she is going to ask him for a different kind of water. She doesn't really understand it all yet. Now, what is the gift of God? For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus the Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life. You could render it. And of course, living water is defined here, as it is in many Old Testament passages, as a relationship with God. It's used in two ways in the Scriptures, and it's obvious the more you read that living water is either moving water, and so even today when a Jew would go into a mikvah to be purified, an Orthodox Jew, and they still do that, or when you visit Israel and you see all these ancient mikvahs, it's not like just stagnant water. The water had to be moving. It had to be living water, so to speak. And of course, the term is used not only literally of moving water, and therefore called living water, but it's also used of a relationship with the Lord. And so, for instance, the prophet Jeremiah, God said through him, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to you for themselves cisterns. A cistern, you know, is a big container, often underground, in which uh, you would store water. They have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. But they've done it for themselves. They have forsaken the Lord. They've gone to idolatry, and that's who Jeremiah is preaching to. Remember, he preaches to the southern kingdom. The Assyrians had already taken away the northern kingdom. Jeremiah preaches to Judah, the southern kingdom, and they too are engaged in idolatry. And God compares their wrong, incomplete, false, evil worship with broken cisterns. Of course, Jesus uses the term living water as well to speak of our relationship with the Lord. He said there on the last day, the great day of the feast, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on to say, these things he spoke of concerning the Spirit who was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. Oh, the trades that even God's people have made and unbelievers have made for the stagnant waters of the world They have bought into stagnant water, broken cisterns, 
And they've traded that for the living, fulfilling water that God offers through a relationship with himself. Here's a woman, a classic example, who's looking for meaning, for, meaning, for happiness in life, and she's looked in all the wrong places. So Christ is trying to help her to see that he wants to be to her spirit what that well would be to her body. And of course, again, there's this double meaning of living water. She thinks he's just speaking of literal water. Look at verse 11. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? In other words, look, you don't even have anything to draw the still water from the well. So where are you going to get this pure stream, this running water? With what? And she's rather curt with him. Look at verse 12. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. You're not greater than him. He's the one who dug this well. We've enjoyed it for centuries. He is Jacob the one whom the whole nation of Israel has been named after. God renamed Jacob, if you remember, Yisrael. Your name will no longer be Yaakov, it will be Yisrael. You're not greater than him. She's saying, just who do you think you are? Well, he's going to tell her in a moment. Now, to claim to be able to provide living water on the spot without having to draw it would mean that he was either a charlatan or a con man, or a rip-off artist, or he is indeed greater than Jacob. But the way the question is framed in the Greek New Testament, her question implies, no, you're not greater than Jacob. And of course, she is doubly wrong, because the water that Jesus offers does not come from the well, and yes, he is indeed greater than Jacob. He is the one who made Jacob and the well water underground, and notice verse 13 as he sets her straight. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, based on the tenses, he's basically saying, whoever continually, habitually drinks of this material water, or in the context, what the world has to offer to give it a spiritual meaning as he will, they're going to thirst again. And by the way, that's good news. Because when you encounter people, who are drinking from the wells of this world, who are trying to get their thirst quenched, Jesus said it won't quench forever. To quote the writer to the Hebrews, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but it's short-lived. It doesn't last forever. And what the world has to offer is a cheap substitute. It pales compared to what the Lord Jesus wants to give us. It never completely satisfies. And of course, interestingly, in hell... Dr. Luke, as he describes an unbeliever, says, I am thirsty, the unbeliever says, give me something to drink. And the text says that their thirst is never quenched for all of eternity. Now, think your way through this. This is important. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You've got to think that through. You need to think it through if you've never met him, and you need to think it through if you have met him. Because Satan is no fool. If you have been saved, he can't remove your salvation. But if he can draw you into the wells of the world, 
if he can try to get you to satisfy a thirst that God himself wants to satisfy, he's got you in a great place because then you are basically neutralized in terms of your usefulness for the kingdom. And he does it so often in such a subtle way that we don't even know we're neutralized. Now, notice her immediate response in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She still doesn't get it. He's speaking spiritual. She's speaking physical, kind of like Nicodemus. Jesus is speaking spiritual. How can I reenter my mother's womb and come out again? She's as blind spiritually as Nicodemus is. But here's a woman who had drunk from the wells of the world. She had done everything to find meaning but she's still thirsty. Sir, give me this water. If you can give me something that will make my life easier, I want it. He said to her, he's going to perform spiritual surgery because, again, she doesn't see it. Nicodemus didn't see it, so Jesus goes to the spiritual. She doesn't see it, so he goes to the spiritual once again. Notice what he said. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, that seems like a rather abrupt change in subject, But the Lord knows that before he can really satisfy this woman's thirst, he has to disturb and shake up her conscience. Listen, before you can get someone saved, you've got to get the person lost. When I present the gospel, whether it's one-on-one in the office or out in the community or one of the most important times I have in sharing the gospel is when I talk to the unbeliever about sin and its consequences, and I don't make jokes about it. It's not a joking time to get people to laugh. I've seen preachers make people laugh about sin. That doesn't bring them into the kingdom. They need to see the seriousness of sin And until they see their sin for what it is, and and while I cannot convict them, God's Spirit entreats through us, and He uses us, and very often you will discover the more you share your faith is issues will surface. I was in dialoguing with a woman yesterday, and an issue surfaced that she was living with a man with whom she was not married. You know, and I could have just ignored that, but God brought it into the conversation. And when God brings it, you want to address it. Otherwise, you do that person a disservice. And so, again, she's thinking physically. She's thinking externally. Jesus wants to go to the inside. Go call your husband and come here. The woman, verse 17, answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. By the way, that's the shortest sentence she makes in the whole thing. I have no husband. I don't know how she did it. Maybe she looked down. I have no husband. Maybe she brushed her hair off. I have no husband. She's under conviction. Jesus says, for you have had five husbands. This woman has been in tandem adultery. Five times divorced and remarried, and now the one you have, you're not even married to him. The one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. He's saying, you don't need to even bother to get married this time 
You didn't even bother to get married. This you're just you're just living with the guy. Yeah, well, uh, how did he know that? It's uncomfortable. She's under conviction. And unless the Spirit of God convicts a person, unless he confronts our sin and he uses people to do it, as we speak truth, the Word of God, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, unless a person is confronted with their sin, they'll never repent. And unless you repent, Jesus said, you likewise will perish. So here's a woman, marriage to marriage to marriage, kind of like a lot of people today, looking for something. If I just get the new car, the new job, the new house, some new dating service, some new girlfriend, the bar scene, I'll find meaning. But the deceiver who comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal only wants to ruin and wreck our lives. Proverbs says, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full with gravel. So the Lord Jesus has to show this woman her sin because, again, unless you see your sin, you'll never come to him for his drink. Now, she's not the most popular woman in town. That's why she's here in the middle of the day. I'm sure she was popular with the men, but she's certainly not popular with the woman, women. She's a threat to them. And Jesus is really underscoring the truth that he has come to reach such people. You see, sometimes we see people today who are so caught up in sin. Oh, it's one thing. Someone's immoral. I mean, she's slept with 50 men. She's been married five times. He loves his porn. He's a drinker. He's a Christ hater. And we think, oh, there's no hope for him. There is hope. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It is a trustworthy statement. Paul will write, it deserves our full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But you see, in the name of compassion, we don't want to confront sin. And so Joel Osteen in one of his books says, I never speak about sin because people hear so many negative things during the week. You cannot understand forgiveness and grace and mercy unless you understand sin. And so we have the great cover-up in modern-day evangelicalism. Church discipline, who's ever heard of it? Oh, we, don't, we don't want to deal with church. You know, many churches don't even have membership. You know why? Because they don't have to do church discipline. If there's no membership then who do you discipline? If someone who comes to your assembly and they're caught up in some kind of immorality or drunkenness or something that is of a public nature that deserves what the New Testament calls church discipline, if there's no members, there's no one to discipline. Very convenient. The New Testament teaches membership, but people don't want to become members often because if I become a member, I become accountable to the body of Christ. And so, in the name of compassion, in being non-judgmental, we're afraid in our day to confront sin. So, Jesus first pricks her conscience, 
shows her her sin so that he can satisfy her thirst. The woman said to her, look at verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He just read her soul. And she knows in some way Jesus has to be inspired by God. And so like most people who are under conviction, what does she do? She changes the subject. It's easier to talk about maybe something that's religious or theology than something that's convicting and distressing. So she says to Jesus in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain here in Mount Gerizim where Israel recited the blessings for obeying God. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that the Jewish people were to worship 12.5 in the place God would choose for his name to dwell. But God hadn't revealed that yet in the first five books when Moses is alive. And so she's a Samaritan. And Samaritans only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so it's not until the time of King David. Now, God had given some hints in kernel form, even in Genesis. It's not by accident that Abraham sacrifices his only son there on top of Mount Moriah, what today we call the Temple Mount. It's not by accident when there's a plague that kills tens of thousands of people that David has to buy a piece of property on the top of Mount Moriah. And it's in that very spot that God will reveal to David that that's where the temple is going to be built. But God hadn't revealed that yet. And so Samaritans are thinking, well, here, this is the place where Abraham came. Mount Gerizim was the place where they recited the blessings of God. This must be where we can worship. Because remember, they weren't welcomed in Jerusalem. So what do you say, Jesus? Mount Moriah or Mount Gerizim? And so she's changed the subject, and that's what people do sometimes. You don't really believe in hell, do you, Pastor? Pastor, you're telling me Jesus is the only way? What about the person who's never even heard the name of Jesus? You mean to tell me God is going to send him to hell for having never believed in a Savior whose name he's never even heard? What kind of a God do you worship? Or they'll say, hey, Pastor, where did Cain get his wife? And the problem is usually not typically Cain's wife, but sometimes another man's wife. You know, there's a moral issue that typically drives the smoke screens that unbelievers will toss at you. Or sometimes, and very often, they'll get into denominations. But listen, no denomination can save you, not the Presbyterians or the Baptists or the Catholics or the Episcopalians or anyone else, only Christ can. Maybe you heard the story about the Baptist man who was trying to get the Methodist to become a Baptist. And he kept pleading with her, and she finally says, I don't want to become a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. He said, what difference does it make? Why are you so stuck on being a Methodist? My grandfather was a Methodist. My grandmother was a Methodist. My father was a Methodist. My mother was a Methodist. My husband was a Methodist. And I'm a Methodist. He said, well, that doesn't make any sense. If your grandfather was a fool, if your grandmother was a fool, if your mother was a fool, if your father was a fool, if your husband were a fool, then what would you be? She said, I'd be a Baptist. Listen, no denomination can get you to heaven. Only Jesus can. So she's under conviction. She throws out a theological. What about all the hypocrites in the church? It's a smokescreen. 
Now, please notice his response in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, and that's, by the way, is a respectful way of addressing someone in the first century. Woman, he did it of his own mother. Woman, behold your son on the cross. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. He's telling her that there is little to be gained by this prolonged debate because God is about to change the rules. He's going to bypass a place of worship. Notice verse 22, you worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's telling her, he's honest with her. The Samaritans, he says, you don't know. But we Jews, we do know. He's dealing with her in truth. He is the truth. God only accepts the faith of the Jews. The Bible is of Jewish origin. Our Savior is a Jew. The first Christians were all Jewish. But lest she get stuck on some place of worship, notice what he said, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In truth, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Do you see what he's saying and doing? Jesus is saying it's not this mountain, Gerizim. It's not the mountain in Jerusalem, Moriah. But you must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. The hour is coming, and it has now been inaugurated because it's going to be fulfilled shortly at the cross the promise of the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant, he says at the last table, the new deal, where the way people approach God and worship God, it doesn't have to be at a wall. It doesn't have to be at a temple. It doesn't have to be in a church building. You're going to worship him and serve him from the inside out. You're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. Question, why does God want us to worship him? Is he some kind of celestial egotistical person where he just wants to hear us praising him and telling him how great he is? Is God somehow insecure that he needs our worship? Of course not. The reason the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth is because to worship him in spirit and truth is to be born again. To be born again is to be a member of the kingdom, and it's to have your name in the Lamb's book of life, and it's to go to heaven when you die and not to hell. Not to mention God made us and created us in his image, and life is most fulfilling and satisfying as we worship him in spirit and in truth. And by the way, if you are saved, you need to be filled with the Spirit. He indwells you. He needs to fill you and empower your life moment by moment. And of course, worship in the Bible, though it is certainly expressed in the early church where they gathered on the first day of the week. So you can't say, like one guy said to me, look, I worship out of my boat, pastor. Don't invite me to church. He says, me and God and my six-pack of beer. That's what he told me. Yeah, man. God calls us in the first day of the week to gather with his people. And if you're listening to me and your pattern is not to gather with the people of God and the Lord, say you're living in disobedience if you are indeed a Christian. And it's not just singing a few songs on Sunday morning. That's one dimension of worship. 
But worship in the New Testament and even in the prophet Malachi and other Old Testament prophets, it's your whole life. It's presenting yourself as a living and a holy sacrifice, and it's not restricted to a particular locale. Now, some people, quote, unquote, worship in spirit, but not in truth. And that's fanaticism. That's emotionalism. And some people, they, they worship in truth, but they're really not walking in the spirit. And it becomes somewhat legalistic and cold and sterile. No, God calls us to worship in spirit and in truth. He's talking about our human spirit being made alive, our new man, our inner man, to use Paul's terminology, be made alive by the Spirit of God, where we can worship God in spirit according to the dictates of Holy Scripture. Now, she evidently was listening. Look at her response, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. A parenthetical note. Why does he put that? Because John is a universal gospel. And you have a lot of Greek people who know the Savior of the world by the Greek term Christ. But you know, of course, the term Christ. Jesus Christ is not his last name. You know, Jesus' first name, Christ. It's a title. The anointed one. Jesus the Messiah. Messiah, Hebrew, Christos, Greek. It's an interchangeable term. John's just giving us that note. The woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Even the Samaritans. We're looking for the Messiah. Why? Because God gave the very first promise of a Savior right after Adam's sin, and it's unfolded all the way through the first five books. She said, I know Messiah is coming. And Jesus said to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one you're looking for. She's having a face-to-face encounter with the Lord. And the Spirit of God can give you a face-to-face encounter as an unbeliever with himself by the Holy Spirit as he convicts you. And he's asking some of you today to make a decision for Christ. Look at verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled. They were blown away that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, why do you, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? They're amazed. He's speaking with a woman. Again, in these days, men didn't speak with women, certainly not in public, but Jesus elevated women to a whole nother level. Women were viewed by many people as just a piece of property, no rights. Rabbis in the first century wouldn't even teach them. They said, they're they're not even worth teaching. Jesus saw women of equal value. And he tells men that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So the woman, the Bible says, look at her reaction. She left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Why'd she leave her water pot? Probably so excited. She just forgot it. And she went and said to the people, it's anthropos. Don't, when you, I heard a sermon one time, a guy said, well, she didn't go to the women because the women didn't like her. So she went to the men. No, it's anthropos. She went to men and women alike. And if you just kept reading, the context draws that out. So here she is. She goes into the town 
She said, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Messiah, the Christ, is it? Is she exaggerating when she says that she has told him everything? Not at all. Because she knows that because he knows what she knows, in essence, he can tell everything about her. This is not the Christ, is it? She knew and believed it was, but she frames the question in such a way that she's asking the people to make a decision for themselves. The Bible says in verse 30, they, the people, went out of the city and were coming to him. Now, obviously, in her excitement, she's convincing enough to get the townspeople to follow her out to see for herself. Now, there's the confrontation. Christ has come to seek and to save that which is lost. There's the conversation that brings us now to the conversion, to the conversion. Let's look now, if you will, at verse 31. I'm just about finished. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They're urging him. They went into town. They bought the food. The Lord is no doubt hungry, and he may still be thirsty. As far as I know, she never gave him the drink, but they're just kind of in shock, They're not saying anything. He's already challenged them on that day by going to a group of people that Jews would never even talk with, dialogue with. You know, a lot of churches are homogeneous when they shouldn't be. They're all rich, or they're all poor, they're all black, or they're all white. And if a community is that way, then that church might reflect it. But there's few communities in the world that are that way. Even in parts of the world where you have, say, a particular ethnicity that dominates, even within that ethnicity. They're rich, they're poor, they're educated, they're uneducated, and a local church should reflect that. And if it doesn't, you know, Rick Warren, well, we'd have our target audience, Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Samantha, and we're looking for a person, you know, who's basically upper middle class. They make between 80 and 150K a year, and da-da-da-da-da, and that's our target audience. That's a form of prejudice, and it goes against the very tenor of the Word of God. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought anything to him to eat, did he? They're thinking literal food like she was thinking literal water. And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Some of you have experienced that. Sometimes I get so caught up in ministry. Sometimes on Thursdays I start appointments at noon. And sometimes I have them on the half an hour, hour all the way until 7.15. I go in to meet the pastor at 7.15 and I finish sometimes 9 o'clock and I haven't eaten since breakfast. But sometimes it is so refreshing to be with people and to be involved in spiritual ministry that you understand, and many of you have been here, you know my food is to do the... That's not to say we don't need physical food, we do. But the will of the Father, it can be so satisfying. So Jesus says in verse 35, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. What did he mean by that statement? Well, some take it that the fields had just been planted, and in mid-April, the harvest would be ready. 
The problem with that is that makes this event a mid-December event, totally ignoring the context where Passover has just taken place. If you read it in Greek, it's actually rhythmic. There's a rhyme to it. And when there are rhymes in the Greek New Testament, those are proverbial statements. In other words, uh, yet four months, and then comes the harvest. The, the seed is in the ground. We can finally catch our breath and just take it easy for a little bit. And Jesus said, you might think that way in terms of physical harvesting, but you don't need to think that way in the spiritual harvest. The harvest that God has of souls, it's not restricted to a time, and it's not restricted to a place. You see, they may have very well, as you maybe have thought, passed the Samaritan woman. We don't know that for sure. They may have. But the fact is, is they went into a town, a Samaritan town, and they bought food from Samaritans. They're born-again men. They convinced no one to leave the town and come meet the Savior of the world whom they knew to be the Messiah that well. This woman convinced them. She was a greater soul winner than any of these men were. And so Jesus is reminding them, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. They needed some spiritual vision. They were just absorbed in themselves. And we can get so caught up in our own little world, our hobbies, our houses, our cars, our bank accounts, our professions, that we don't really see people in the course of it. Already, verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together, for in this case the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. I've sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, John 4, 38 indicates that others had labored. Who are the others? We don't know for sure. Probably John the Baptist. He was in an area very close to this region. He had been preaching repentance and getting people to get prepared for the coming of Messiah. And yet, they on this day are going to reap a harvest. Someone had gone before them. Now, sometimes you are in a, an encounter with a person, and, and you've had the privilege to bring someone to a point of decision, and, and they've called upon Christ in your presence, and they've asked Jesus to save them. And very often, the one who, quote-unquote, gets the credit is the evangelist, the pastor, the missionary, but that's not how God sees it. Many times, I lead someone, quote-unquote, to Christ. And I'm just entering in on someone else's labor. Someone else has cried and prayed and witnessed and shared and served. And God has used all that to prepare their hearts. And at the judgment seat of Christ, God will count things differently. Not the way man counts things. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored, others have labored, you've entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman, that's her conversion, who testified, he told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, 
They were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. He honored their request. He broke every Jewish tradition. He visited in their homes. He ate at their tables. They slept in their beds. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Yes, salvation is from the Jew, but it's for the whole world, as the Old Testament affirmed. These guys are saying, look, if he loves us, a despised, hated people, He'll not just save the Jews. He'll save anyone. He is the Savior of the world. Have you met him? You can by faith. You come to Jesus by faith. Faith is believing what God promised. Do you know that if this were your last day on earth, that heaven is your home? I hope so. I think so. Maybe so. But you don't know so. You can receive the gift of God, the living water, eternal life today, but you must believe what God said. That's the nature of faith. He said to Abraham, Abraham, leave Ur. He leaves Ur. He walks months and months. He comes to Haran. His dad's probably sick. He has to take a break. Leave Haran. He walked over 1,100 miles, and God didn't even give him the first direction. He didn't say go north, south, east, or west. God said, you leave, and I'll show you when you get to the spot. And one day, God appears right near this spot, and he says, Abram, this is it, and we call it Israel today. Noah built a boat, never rained before. God watered the earth with the mist from below, but I'm going to flood the world. And Abraham, I mean, Moses took God at his word. Noah took God at his word. He believed what he said. He had faith, and that's what God asks you to do. See, you believe people every day. You trust them. They make you a promise, and the longer you live, you realize man's word sometimes is unreliable, even deceptive. God keeps all his promises. He cannot lie. And because Jesus did what he did on a cross and was proven through the resurrection, he said, you call on his name, and he'll save you. Christ Jesus receives sinful men. That should be our message. And if you've met the Savior, we need to be taking the initiative because life is like a breath that appears for a moment and then is gone. Every week, I get emails or phone calls of someone who suddenly died. Oh, I'm not dying this year. I'm going to live till I'm 90. We're one heartbeat away from eternity, and we need to be prepared. Now, Holy Father, I pray today for someone who has never taken you at your word. Thank you that you can say, whoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, applying that to Jesus, you said you'd save them right now and for all of eternity. Help someone, Father, in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world, come and forgive me and change me and save me. 
Now, Father, many of us are here a part of your kingdom because someone was faithful with the word of God. Help us to exemplify the same faithfulness you said it is required of a steward that one be found faithful. And thank you that only eternity will tell whether indeed we planted a seed or whether we harvested a soul. Thank you that you use every dimension of the process. But whether you use us directly or indirectly, I pray and ask that all who have called and pleaded at your throne, that you would give them one person for the kingdom this year, that you would honor that request and that they would use the means that you've given to us. Thank you for your word that is alive, that is sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. May we never be ashamed of the scripture. May we use it freely as we look and pray for open doors of opportunities. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And I want to ask somebody, you, to leave your seat and to come during this time. Maybe you just a moment ago or in recent days or weeks said, Lord Jesus, save me. Stand up. And you've never made it public. I want to invite you this morning to do that. Maybe you're here and you've never been baptized. You've made a decision in your heart, but you've never made the public confession through baptism. I want to invite you to do that. Maybe you're here and you've already been saved and baptized. You're maybe in Graniteville this morning or in Grays or in Bluffton, and you need a church home. We believe with all our heart that if you know Jesus, you're not ashamed of him. So we would ask even you to come and join publicly. So Matt's going to lead us. Let's all rise, sing this great hymn of the faith. And if you have a decision to make, I want to invite you now to leave your seat and meet me here in the front.